0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Arva Hansen. I'm a researcher at the Center for Development and the Environment at the University of Oslo and part of leading the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. In this episode, we discuss China's environmental ambitions. China, of course, plays an increasingly central role in efforts towards global sustainability. China's position needs to be understood in relation to the importance placed upon sustainable development by the Chinese Communist Party and by Xi Jinping himself. This episode aims to contribute towards broader knowledge on this crucial topic and, among other things, unpack the concept of ecological civilization and understand what this means in practice. To help us do so, we are very pleased to welcome some of Norway's leading experts on ecological civilization and on Chinese environmental politics. With us, we have Göril Hegeland, research professor at Fritjof Nansen's Institute, we have Yong Zhou, a postdoctoral fellow at Norwegian Center for Human Rights at the University of Oslo, and Björn Leif-Brautazet, a PhD candidate at the Center for Development and the Environment at the University of Oslo. Welcome, all three of you. Görel, I would like to start with you. You're an expert on Chinese environmental and climate politics. What is happening in Chinese environmental and climate politics? I know it's a huge question, but can you give us the broad picture of the situation right now?
1: Thank you very much for the invitation to participate. We know that China's rapid growth has had a great impact on China's environment, both air and ground and water. They're all seriously polluted, and air pollution in particular has been very serious and grave in many of China's cities and throughout the country. And as we know, China is the largest emitter globally of CO2 emissions. They have increased maybe 3.7 times since 1990 by 2018. So it accounts for about 28% of all emissions in the world. So climate change has become a great concern for the Chinese government, also because air pollution also has health aspects, I mean, bad health for people. (laughs) So what's happening in China is that China has come up with lots of policies, actually, to address some of these issues and, the most recent policy objectives are that China wants to peak its emissions before uh, 2030 and also to become carbon neutral by 2060. And this is important to have these goals, of course, but what's happening on the roads to reaching these goals, that will be quite
0: important. Thank you very much. Bian. At the core of China's new interest and efforts towards sustainability is Xi Jinping and the idea of ecological civilization. The importance and potential implications of ecological civilization remain poorly understood outside China and China studies, it seems. I certainly ignored it until you convinced me that this is actually really important. So, what is ecological civilization and why does it matter?
2: Thank you very much, Arva. This is a fascinating question. And of course, it, it can be easily ignored. The origin of ecological civilization is, of course, much older than Xi Jinping. It has been developed by many different academics as to what it means, has been different kind of imaginaries of what it could mean. In some aspects, maybe a call back to a rebirth of the agricultural Chinese civilization. But really, If we can look at what Xi Jinping has done and the way that he's used this concept, or at least his administration and the people around him have crafted this concept, it's really about trying to include environmentalism into the logic, the internal logic of the Communist Party and its ideology and to create a green socialism and to also realign China's values with sustainable development goals, but also... Interpret sustainable development goals to suit the kind of organizational structures of the Chinese state, which, of course, are generally built around some Leninist organizational principles, which can be very effective in mobilizing all different sectors of society, but are not very effective in, for example, joining environmental norms with, say, human rights. So there are some strengths and weaknesses. But what is really most important is that kind of line from the party has been used. This ecological civilization legal slogan has been used as a justification for a whole lot of new jurisprudence and legal drafting and changes in the law that have a green bent that, for example... There is now in the Chinese civil code, this new code that has come out in the past years has a green principle in it, which has been used in some jurisprudence and has been justified as being there because of this ecological civilization concept.
0: Thank you, Ben. It's really interesting. Jung, you've studied China's environmental commitments in practice, for example, in the energy sector. How do these grand visions of, for example, ecological modernization translate to actual practices on the ground? Do such visions actually matter?
3: Thank you, Avi, for these questions. Yes, I think when we are doing legal researches and observations where we shouldn't only read the law on the paper. So there's a lot of development that you can see that the ecological civilization has been adopted in the 2018 Constitution and also Justice Bjorn mentioned that the Civil Code in 2017, the Article 9, has adopted it, which is so-called the Green Principle. And also, there's a lot of documents that you cannot uh, neglect. For example, the parties document, the government document, which is all these are very important. I don't have time to list this. But also you have a judicial, actually the Supreme Court, for example, if you want to see the reality, it's actually the Supreme Court of China has been issued, at least if I mentioned one, two judicial interpretations and opinions on how to provide the judicial protection and judicial services for improving the biological civilization and the green development in China. One is the 2015, the other is 2016. All this law, which is on the paper, but I'm actually interested in to observing the in practice, especially about take the hydropower, for example, as an example to see what the rules and principles, concepts actually translated into the actual practice. In this sense, I would like to name perhaps a few things because I think Ecological civilization is actually not only a perspective or idea or principle. when we observe it, I would like to see the ecological civilizing process in China, which is I would like to observing who are the actors to implement those principles. Government, companies, hydropower development will be the state-owned enterprises, not NGOs, and even including the citizens, individuals. So this will be a good way, I think, to observing what's your question, what's the translated into actual practice. If I may just mention one thing, I found this new development in China is actually related to the public interest litigation in relation to the ecological civilization. For example, If I narrow down to the hydropower development in 2020, there's two cases. One was brought to court by the famous NGO Friends of Nature. That is related to the peacock in, in Yunnan province, linked to the hydropower development there. So the hydropower, the dam building, will threaten to the peacock, green peacock, which is an endangered species. The second was also A case for the public interests was initiated by the China Biodiversity Conservation and the Green Development Foundation, which is in Sichuan. They found the Yagen hydropower project along the Yalong River, which will be threatening to the plant, which is endangered and listed as a red species. All these two cases actually win, supported by the court that Those construction of the hydropower should hold it. So if I may say in practice, it's like this. But uh, there are problems. If I can, I will elaborate later.
0: Thank you. Geryl, do you have any thoughts on this? Do you see these visions in practice when it comes to environmental and climate politics in China?
1: Well, (laughs) we follow a lot of policymaking in China, looking into the actors who are in charge, who will carry out the policies. And if I may go back a little bit to uh, the emissions and the climate and energy, because coal has been the biggest source of energy for China for many decades. It has helped China to develop its economy, but it's also the culprit, if you can say it that way, because of the emissions that China has. And it still counts for about 56% of all of China's energy. But Zhou Yong was also talking about, there's a focus on hydro, renewable energy, solar and wind. That's a great focus. And I think there has been a, a shift in China with regard to energy policies, because in 2013 and 2014, you had really, really bad air in northern China, including in Beijing. I was living in Beijing at the time, and it was horrific. I mean, people were so concerned. And this is also something I related maybe also to what Zhou uh, Young also was talking about, with participation in environmental policy or environment, And people were hearing their frustrations in WeChat, you know, on social media. In addition to that, the U.S. Embassy in China had started to issue um, information about the air quality in Beijing and other cities, which was not so welcome in the beginning by the Beijing municipality. But eventually, they did also start publishing the same. But The thing is that they published or issued information about the PM 2.5, which is horrific, it's terrible for your health, the levels are too high. So what has happened? We could say that China has introduced policies. There were quite a few policies at the time that came out, air pollution policies to to address these issues or these challenges in North China, which are quite successful compared with the five-year plans that are more guiding. It has some goals, objectives that are very clear and binding, but the air pollution program was very much concrete. You know, you have to do this, you have to do that. So there have been good results actually from this program in Northern China. Air quality in cities have in fact improved. So that is a good thing. There are a lot of things that can be said about China's current climate and energy policies and environmental policies. It's high up on the agenda of the government, but of course, There's also some mixed signals a little bit because, you know, with the latest five-year plan, which is the 14th five-year plan, there are some mixed signals in there. It focuses on to transform its energy picture, energy mix, moving towards alternative or greener energy. But at the same time, coal also has an important role to play still. And especially in the past couple of years, we have seen a little bit of a return to coal consumption. So that is still a challenge probably, with regard to emissions, the energy and the climate. But uh, you also have the coal-producing provinces that are not maybe that happy about going away from coal, such as Inner Mongolia, Shanxi, and and even Shandong, is the highest consumption in China is uh, in Shandong province of coal. There are some mixed signals coming out, and there are some challenges, of course, because it also has socioeconomic aspects that you go away from coal mining, many jobs in the sector and even though you try to go to a uh, renewable energy sector find jobs it's maybe not the same people right so (laughs) there are some challenges for the people there but so far it seems quite a few people have also been able to find jobs in the renewable energy sector. So that is a positive i would say development for that sector in china
0: now björn the legal framework has appeared a couple of times in our conversation already what do you think Can law make China greener or are Chinese environmental laws strong or weak today?
2: Well, that's a very good question. I would say that they are becoming stronger, but there are elements that I would like to see in them that may not be present right now. One of the uh, things that I have noticed in the human rights action plan of China from last year is that there is a listing of environmental human rights, for example, which are mainly actually structured around not a new kind of invention of environmental human rights, but rather are related to the kind of remedies that can be produced through the environmental public interest litigation process. So I want to quote Deng Xiaoping, actually, when in 1978, he wrote a piece on guiding principles on legislative work. He says, a law can be rough to start with. A law can be made only when there is a need, and a law should be made when an issue is ripe. And I think that that is a very indicative of the process of ecological civilization lawmaking today. As the Chinese state tests out legislative processes and plays with different ideas, they can see different emerging practices and what would be beneficial for the regime, what may make it difficult for the regime. And so they will tailor a very specific set of environmental norms, which they feel will work within the authoritarian structure of the party state. One of the ways that I've tried to also understand this beyond just the state law, the law that you have on the books, is also to look at the regulations and the way that ecological civilization is imagined in the party documents that govern the party. Those are procedural documents, substantive statements, as well as ideological systems to help party members Conceptualize the world as they are tasked with the heavy duty of socialist development. And one thing that I've seen again and again is although there are substantive statements about ecological civilization and even procedural systems in place for environmental damage and uh, compensation against leading party members and government officials. There is very little conceptually that guides party members to balance the tension between the environment and economic development, which is a very, very central part of the party's mandate, economic development, and also very important for their continued legitimacy and their harmonious hold on power. So one thing that I would like to say is that although there are increasing legal norms that are strengthening, there is a problem between individual rights, of course, not really having a way to access this uh, judicial process when it comes to litigation. And then there's the other problem of green growth, which is very much what the concept of ecological civilization has been centered around in, in many aspects, and the problem of proportional conservation. So when you have growth, how do you proportionally conserve the environment in relation to development, relation to infrastructure? How do you calculate for CO2 over a long term? How much land do you need to preserve? And what are the roles of communities in the preservation of forests, Do they have a say? Are they consulted? These processes are not always clear. And then when we look further on into the Belt and Road Initiative, it's hard to see a clear link between what is happening within the territory of the People's Republic of China and the Belt and Road Initiative when it comes to these environmental principles being put into investment contracts so that when it comes to arbitration and interpretation that these ideas are present so that is probably where the weaknesses are but that doesn't mean that there may be changes in the future as the model of chinese investment in the world is changing in the post covid situation or the end of hopefully the end of the covid situation
0: Jung, you're, you're an expert on among many other things <laughs> minority and indigenous peoples rights Can you tell us a bit more about how these rights coexist or not with China's environmental ambitions?
3: Yes. First of all, actually, I want to add one point, which is you just asked Bjorn about whether the environmental law is stronger or weaker. I think it's an interesting question and it's actually not easy to answer because from one aspect, you see a lot of strengthening like we just mentioned, the green principles in the civil law and also the public litigation, which is showing it's possible now. Since 2015, 2016, when the Supreme Court initiated all these judicial interpretations and opinions so that NGOs actually can raise those cases to the court, which means that in China now we can take preventive measures normally it's a remedial measures. So before those pollution cases or other cases that you you take it after when the harmful consequences happen, but now actually NGOs can use the legal instruments to prevent those uh, potential risks which is about to happen. So this I would say is a stronger of course, in a way. And also the environmental impact assessment law, for example, it wasn't exists. exist. I remember uh, she's the real pioneer researcher on the hydropower development in China. And those laws uh, during that period of time, it's not really strong or exist. But now this environmental impact assessment law is actually very important. However, when we see weak or strong, it's actually you need to response to the existing New challenges, for example, the hydropower development back to the 2000. That is the state strategy to transfer the electricity from the west to the eastern part of China. So the western part of China, the hydropower development has been very much developed in those southwest China, which is the most biological and cultural diversity areas. So in those areas, that uh, we need perhaps not only to think about the environmental or biological protections, but also we need to think about the culture diversities. And those are the new challenges in relation to the minorities or indigenous peoples. Those are the new challenges, which is, I think, still the law is so weak to responding to. So this is why I want to add it there. I think it's a very interesting question that you raised. The second is that I'm concerning about what you call uh, minorities or indigenous people's homelands in China. That is actually, according to the West strategy, it's actually more than 85% or more are the minority autonomous areas. So these areas, when the state doing development like hydropower or many other things, even to protect the environment, like establish a national park or doing other conservative measures, which is mitigating or adaptation of the climate change, which is a good in this way to protect the environment. But on the other hand, we need to think about those mountains, rivers, lakes, forests, wetlands. They are material basis for the way of lives of those people who live there. And the linkage between the culture diversity and the biodiversity is strongly linked. So when we think about this kind of protected the environment, we cannot neglect these aspects, which I think it's very much weak in the legal measures and also in the practice. For example, it is not enough to take the environmental impact assessment for the projects. We need to take the social impact assessment as well. We should take the culture impact assessment, which is, I mean, culture here, more related to their spiritual values, their worldviews. For example, in these places, you have a lot of sacred natural sites, holy mountains, sacred lakes, linked to the spiritual beliefs, all this. You need to make an assessment of it And also others may raise the concept as a sustainability impact assessment. We need a more comprehensive impact assessment in relation to the minority or indigenous peoples area when you develop the environmental protection or other renewable energy project. One more thing, my concern is that the ecological civilization perspectives and the designs and measures uh, projects very much actually it's a from top-down perspective so the government the state-owned enterprises they are coming as the ecological civilizer to civilizing the local people for doing the things right otherwise they will punish you with the existing rules Mm -hmm. however i think This has the gap actually between what are the scientific supported knowledge of environmental protection and the traditional knowledge, which is the local knowledge used by the local people with their way of lives. From the top-down perspective, thinking about all those projects, which is Linked to the so called ecological civilization, might not really think or take care, which is I think is lacking the culture perspectives, the rights perspectives, or the human perspectives. It's only take care maybe about endangered species or endangered animals, endangered plants, which I mentioned these two leading environmental public education cases. But how about the people? How about their culture? How to coordinating bridge this link not only from top down perspective but also from the bottom up perspective
0: now we're getting towards the end of the episode but finally i would like your reflections on the future so i think it's fair to say that china will play a key role in basically any global sustainability issue also in the future but as we've learned from you today sustainability questions aren't straightforward i would like to hear a short version of your expectations for the future do you have high hopes for a green China or at least a significantly greener China than what we see today. Görel, could you start?
1: Okay, I can start. I also agree very much what has been said before with uh, Jung and also he mentioned that I did uh, work on the Three Trigordes Dam which has been important and also the environment impact assessment. I think that was important but of course because it then they put it on paper so that is important also for the future in China. Everything that is put in law on paper then you can at least try to do something about it but to your question about the future and china and green china well china is trying to go green and you see in renewable energy for instance you have the electric vehicles that are now being produced for instance there's a great policy that direction and also as i mentioned before china has many people employed more than 40 percent of the world total is actually employed in renewable energies what i think is Important to say is that, first of all, ecological civilization has kind of set the tone for development in China. Energy and climate has high-level support, comes from the top. That is, of course, has its uh, challenges as well, as Zhou Yong was mentioning. But uh, at least the policy is there and you can try to do something about it. So there is some positive trends, I would say. And also some challenges, such as the subnational policy implementation, as I mentioned before. Some conflict of interest between the center and the provinces. With regard to the global side, China's role in global governance, environmental governance and climate governance, we have seen that China was really instrumental to the Paris Agreement together with the United States at the time. And I think China also has a role to play in global environmental governance. China has been very active also in the Minamata Convention on Mercury and also, of course, the Convention on Biological Diversity. The first part of the convention was held in China in Kunming but then the second part will be held in Canada due to the COVID restrictions in China for the time being. So we do see that China is actively participating and engaging in global environmental governance. This is also, of course, because China also is prioritizing these issues at home. So there is close linkage between the domestic and the international sides of this development. It's hard to say in one sentence, but are you really optimistic or not? But I think there is some chance that China can become greener at least, but it will take some time and it will take some hard prioritizing and it will maybe become more challenging for people. In the EU, for instance, you have the focus on justice aspects of the development. And when you do go from coal, for instance, to another, from renewables, for instance, there will be some justice aspects and socioeconomic aspects there. All these issues, I think, will be more pertinent to to China as time goes on. And just hoping that things will continue in the right direction. At least the policies are there and the trend has been set. But there can be some setbacks in the short term. But on the long term, I think uh, China will move towards at least uh, a greener society. And I think that's what people also would like to see. Blue skies and clean water and all that.
0: Thank you. Some careful optimism is nice. Jung, what about you? I think I would like to say, first of all, we need a paradigm
3: shift of the existing environmental law. I think this is one of the essential things. no matter how much you emphasize on the ecological civilization or many other things, if you put the human as the centered, human centered law, if we say the environmental law, which is to protect the environment for the human interests. The other kind of law, based on any kind of different versions of the deeper ecology concept, that we think humans are only part of the beings or life on the earth. So ecological-centered law or earth jurisprudence law, those are the two very different kind of legal frameworks. What I can see now is that we are still in the human-centred environmental protection, this makes a lot of issues cannot be solved. If we want to approach a global sustainability, for example, transboundary river issues, conflicts, if you take the upstreams, if you take the dam building without thinking about the downstreams, these kind of conflicts were not leading to the global sustainability, which is... I think because you are not only human-centered, you are nation-centered or you are state-centered. So for the state sovereignty, nationalism, the natural resources nationalism, all these, it's a kind of big barriers for us to move towards the global sustainability concept. This is one thing I would like to say. We must have a paradigm shift. That direction, we can solve some problems here. The second. I would like to say that there's a gap between the state law and the local law or the traditional customary law or practice of the local people in China. The state law in relation to the natural resources, you manage the natural resources as a state-owned property, like rivers. Now China is going to classify the rights of the river, rights of the water. But the thing is that if you don't recognizing there's another kind of rules or communities way of lives, customary rules there, then the state law cannot accommodating the different worldviews of those norms and those are the way of lives of the local peoples. Then it will not make a green China feasible in a way because I think we have many other indigenous places that they do have their philosophies, their worldviews, that they protect their water and grassland and the forests very well, but they're depending on another system to thinking about the property, not the state concept of the property. It's based on what I call a spiritual governance instead of perhaps a natural resource governance by the state, different knowledge systems. Without that kind of bridge, it's not feasible, I would say. The third, I think, is we need to improve the law and the practices, but we need to improve good laws and the law could functional. For example, I'm a little bit suspicious about the green principles of the civil law code, which is just adopted. compare with the traditional civil law principles, like a good faith, like a free will, like a fairness, those are the breach all the individuals' behavior. So if you are cheating, if you are not in the good faith, then our contract cannot valid according to the law. But the Article Nine, it's a green principle. It said when engaged in the civil activities, all persons shall be aware of the need to save resources and protect the environment. How to interpret this? individual behavior, that they have to be aware of the needs to save the resources and protect the environment. This is different, very different, although it is a very normative rules and show the Chinese willingness to put these green principles in the civil code, but how to really interpret these new principles in the individual civil action. I think we need a law which is a functional reasonable rationale, a good law. And also, in order to protect the environment, we shouldn't also only think about the environmental law of the state. The state has the obligations to implementing other commitments, for example, human rights conventions and many other conventions to combine it together. So this is what I want to conclude in my short hope or
2: visions of
0: this. Thank you very much. What about you, Björn?
2: I just wanted to say that I really do find and agree with the perspectives from both Jöril and Jung, and I wanted to kind of bring them together a little bit in finishing this piece. What I would like to start with is from Jung talking about all these green principles and problem of good faith one of the interesting things that some scholars like Alex Wang and Iza Ding, who work on environmental law in China, have spoken about is this kind of symbolic performance by the state. When the state is controlling all the information and there is some uncertainty about the truth of the information or how to validate it, there's maybe some information asymmetry you may have a state being able to show that it is performing a lot of environmentalisms by legislating, by even creating a bunch of uh, bureaucratic agencies to interact with the population and really show care. But whether or not these illegal systems create remedies that actually solve the problems, that may be another case entirely. So it's hard to judge how how well they solve the problem of sustainability. And there's a lot of ongoing scholarship about that. And when it comes to this concept of spiritual governance and also policies, when we look beyond China and into the Belt and Road Initiative, recently, last year, the Ministry of Commerce and the Ministry of Ecology and the Environment jointly issued the Guidelines for Green Development and Foreign Investment and Cooperation, and one of the most interesting lines in this document states that in relation to greening the Belt and Road Initiative, ministries will encourage companies to adopt international and Chinese standards in investing activities where local laws and regulations are non-existent or too lenient. And what I found very interesting in my field work is when I spoke to Chinese companies about their eco-friendliness, they reiterated often especially in countries like Kenya, how difficult it was and how stringent the Kenyan environmental laws were and how actually of a high quality they were. And then when I spoke to environmental organizations and conservationists in Kenya, they tended to reiterate that they were not always happy with the way that their legal systems were working or that their environmental impact assessments were maybe not appropriate for certain areas and they wanted to see an improvement or a paradigm shift in their own environmental laws. And so you see a slight communication breakdown in even these formal systems, we're not just talking about minority kind of knowledge of governance of the environment, for example, in China, but also the formal systems of one state related to the policies of another when it comes to investment. So so that's another interesting uh, perspective that maybe China could try and improve on. And it's very easy to just emphasize that, oh, this country has a great environmental system. So there's no mechanism to help Companies or investors decide where a host state's legislation or regulations are too weak or non existent. That doesn't seem to be apparent to me. And then, of course, there's also this development of a kind of international commercial courts all over the world in different jurisdictions. China is also one of these. But going to the international commercial court in China, you have to really prove that there is a strong link between your contract dispute and Chinese law. And it doesn't seem to be a forum for any environmentally related issues when it comes to contract issues in the big investment ecosystem of the Belt and Road. So there are lots of interesting questions that don't yet have answers and deserve further research. But I think that there is a lot of space here for further exploration. And So this concept of ecological civilization is important for many different reasons.
0: So we've reached the end of this fascinating talk and of the episode. Gyuri Hegelen, Joe Jong, Bjorn Life Breadset, thank you for joining us and enlightening us. My name is Arvansen. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia Podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia.
2: You have been listening to the Nordic Asia Podcast.